Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My latest novel, Limelight, is out now. If you'd like a personalised signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. I'll be talking about Limelight at Prima Donna Festival with Rebecca Humphreys on Friday, July the 28th. More dates to be announced. Now to today's guest. We're bringing you a conversation with the best-selling queen of psychological thrillers, Lisa Jewell. We're celebrating Lisa's upcoming book, None of This is True, gripping, shocking and possibly her darkest yet. We talk about our favourite setting for any period drama, London in the 90s, the best books to take on holiday, why we're all so captivated by dark deeds and doings and the iconic author who keeps Lisa on top of their TBR pile. I wanted to start by asking you something that you said when I interviewed you and um, Ashley Audrain a while ago. And I don't know if you remember, but it has stayed with me about writing and having ideas as you go and it being like dropping keys and things into a bowl. We've all got that bowl by our front door where we sort of empty our pockets in instead of every so often you sift through it and some things stay in the bowl and some things don't. And I found that such a comforting and useful idea for writers or for me anyway I have no recollection of saying such a thing (laughs) but it does sound about right I don't yeah um I think everybody whether they write novels or don't write novels collects ideas as they go through life and just certain concepts or people or moments or feelings or smells or sounds just stick with you um, and the brilliant thing about being a novelist is you've got something to do with all those things that stick in your head for whatever reason. And yeah, I guess it is a bit like that weird bowl by your front door that you put all your rubbish in at the end of the day. Um, and it's just, I guess, the key to being able to make a novel out of all that stuff is to see what's shiny. Um, <laughs> it's to be able to pick the good bits out of that bowl. See what's shiny and what's just a receipt. Yeah, <laughs> a exactly, exactly. I know you've spoken about this in interviews before, but the, you know, one of the things that sort of led to the the shaking out of the bowl and seeing what's there was um, High Fidelity by Nick oh. Hornby, which is a book I really love. He's uh, He has been on this podcast. Oh, lucky you. Um, I was in my mid-twenties um, and had gone from being a bookish child who would love to have been a, a novelist one day through being a teenager and a young adult who had zero interest in reading or writing. Um, and I arrived in my mid twenties 
having gone through um, a period of reading very, very heavily and everything I read just felt unattainable, not inaccessible, but unattainable. And it, I just got this idea that if I was ever going to write a novel, it would have to be when I was much, much older and had tons of life experience and lots of awful, dreadful things had happened to me and my character would be fully built. And then possibly around the age of 45, 50, I might consider the possibility of writing a novel. And then I read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby in 1996. And it was so immediate and it was so attainable and it was so familiar to me the voice he spoke in the people he wrote about the scenarios he wrote about um, and he wasn't that much older than me at the time um, and I just found myself thinking someone should write a female version of this book um, and then I found myself thinking well maybe that person could be me I had just finished doing creative writing classes after work on a Monday evening um, so I was feeling a little bit fired up and I got a lot of positive feedback from from other people on that course. And yeah, this audacious little voice inside me said, oh, maybe you could be the, you know, the person who writes a female version of High Fidelity. Um, and yeah, shortly thereafter, I started writing my first novel, which was absolutely nothing like High Fidelity, it needs to be said, but uh, <laughs> would not have been written without well, me having read that. I don't know, because I probably read Ralph Party and High Fidelity around a similar time. I would have been about, I think, sort of 14, 15-ish oh. and... Firstly, both of those books, and I'd never thought about this before. I remember them as places I visited as much <gasps> as books. Like I have got such a clear, like, you know, I know what those kitchens smell like. Yeah. And I know, you know, I've sort of, I've been in those rooms. I've like squatted down in the corners. And I'm like, well, obviously, you know, I haven't at yeah. all. It's all but they, they had that same really like visceral sort of feeling to them. But, you know, with both of them, I remember that giddy, exhilarating, oh, this is this, allowed. Yes. And to me, it felt so hugely aspirational, but not in a matter, you know, because I love, I really, really love Jilly Cooper and that sort of fabulous and aspirational and fun, but in such a different yeah. way. And that felt like the London that I wanted to, to live in one day. Yes. And for me, it was a London I was living in. And I've had that feedback from so many readers who read it when they were younger than I was when I wrote it, who, who tell me that, that reading, reading Rouse Party just gave them a sense of what they wanted life to feel like when they were adults and made lots of people who didn't live in London want to live in London. But what I really was doing was expressing my experience and it, at the time that I wrote Ralph's party I'd just come out of a very bleak um, starter marriage I'd been trapped in the suburbs with a coercive controller for five years um, so I wrote Ralph's party off the back of reclaiming London which is where I come from it's where I was born and bred and I was dragged away to the suburbs against my will um, and I was back and I was in love with a new boyfriend and I was doing flat shares and I just it was all in there everything I was experiencing you know the pubs of Soho jumping on and off route master buses getting stoned cooking curries eating chilies um it was it, it was yeah my my experience and it's lovely it's lovely that you feel like that about it I mean it really you know I know that was like many 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 books away from where you are now but that book lives in my heart oh. um, and I wanted to ask you about Jeff Dyer because I think I read an interview where you said that after that period yeah. That was one of the writers that made you feel like you're sort of, you know, back and back in the room again and that new yeah. kind of second youth feeling. So when I left my first husband, I spent my first few nights um, living back with my mother 
Um, shortly thereafter, I moved in with my sister, but there was this sort of week, I think, where I lived back with my mother. And I found this book in my sister's abandoned bedroom. I think she left three paperbacks behind when she moved out. And one of them was called The Colour of Memory by Jeff Dyer. And it's a small book. It's a slim book. It's a book. And these are my favourite sorts of books. And I wish people would write these sorts of books more often. Books where nothing happens. Um, it is purely a summer in the life of a bunch of graduates. It's their, I believe it's their first summer after graduating and they live in Brixton and they're all a bit loose and they're all a bit lazy and they're all stoned all the time. And they go into sort of like wishy-washy relationships with each other. They don't quite get together. Um, they drift around, they get a job for a couple of nights and then they lose their job and nothing happens. It's just this bunch of people sort of drifting around Brixton in the 1980s. Um, and it just, yeah, absolutely spoke to me. What you can do, if you can get inside the skins of your characters, if you can build a sense of place, if you can build a sense of time um, and energy, and the, the title does all the work for it, it's the colour of memory. It, it, that's what it felt like. It felt like you were reading the colour of somebody's memories of a tiny point in their lives. Um, so yes, that was a very inspiring book for me back in the day. And it did completely, it, it encapsulated what I was feeling about being back in London after all those years uh, away from it. You know, I'm very excited about having this conversation with you, but there's only, you know, more than any book anyone has mentioned or recommended on this podcast. I'm like, I've got to really sit on my hands and not sneak off to sort of a books, whatever, and track it. I just want to read that now. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm probably going to, I don't know, you know, sort of pay for sort of next day delivery it'd be like I'm going to read that this yeah, weekend it won't take you exactly long. what I want it's right very now short it won't take you long <laughs> you talked about being a bookish child um and I think you've mentioned um, Agatha Christie I'd love to hear about that and those first books you chose for yourself oh. that really felt that they were your stories yeah I can't remember I don't remember there being anything for me in our local branch library which was uh in a converted sort of arts and crafts house up the road from us uh, it's had all pattern carpets and mahogany staircases and what have you and I don't remember there being a, br oh, wow. a bridge point for me between sitting on the carpet in the little children's corner reading the Anton B books and being in the adult section picking up my first Agatha Christie I can't really remember the bit in between in my library memory bank, but they're both very, very crystal clear memories sitting, reading Anton B books um, and picking up an Agatha Christie book. I had, could not tell you which one it was, but I do know that it was like crack cocaine. It was just that first book. I was 12 years old. I know that um, because there was this, there's perfect cutoff points. So I was 12 years old. I was allowed four books a week. I would get four Agatha Christie's out. I'd read them in a week, sometimes quite far into the early hours. I was always tired for school the next day. I was addicted. It was it was insane. And then I got to the point where I had read every single Agatha Christie book and I went to the library and I just remember there not being any more Agatha Christie books for me to read. And it was around... They cut you off. They cut off my supply um, but luckily, this was around the time I turned 13, or the year I was going to turn 13, when I discovered 
John Peel and alternative music, and that became my new obsession. So I moved very seamlessly from reading the full works of Agatha Christie into uh, listening to John Peel um, into the early hours of the morning um, instead. Um, and then I didn't read another book, really, apart from the study until I was in my 20s. That was it. I think that's so interesting, though, about when we're teenagers and you write teenagers so brilliantly and that amazing sense of being on the cusp of something. And I think that we have got so much passion and enthusiasm to be tapped into. And it's often, I think, sort of the luck of, you know, what happens and where we get led. That yeah. There's a right place, right time quality to those teen obsessions. Yes, and this is the thing. I now live with teenagers and it's so clear to me that teenagers become a completely different person roughly every six to 12 months. They just become a different person. They're not the same person. They change so quickly and so um, dramatically. Um, it feels like five minutes ago that my youngest one was saying, I'm never going to wear makeup. And she's currently upstairs in her room, troweling it on. She's off to wireless um, this afternoon, um, probably bear, wearing hardly any clothes at all. But yet that's the same person who just a couple of years ago was saying, I shall never wear makeup. Um, so just <laughs> things like that. That's why I love writing about teenagers, because they're not one thing. They're not a solid set thing. Um, I mean, no no person is. My, my favourite unreliable narrators are the ones who don't know themselves, yes. even. They think they're giving an honest account of themselves and actually they don't realize that it's just an account of of a moment in their life a fleeting moment Mm. and they haven't looked at it in 360 degrees or considered the context of it or considered the fact that somebody else might see it differently or that it maybe didn't happen like that yes exactly are your children are they having any sort of like literary (laughs) obsessions or do those come and go are you recommending things or do they recommend anything to you oh it's so tragic because both of them were such little bookworms just like I was my youngest one, she read all the shop. She did a bit of a thing that I did with Agatha Christie with the shopaholic books when she was seven years old. She read all the shopaholic books in about a month. And then both of them, just like I did when I was a teenager, just lost interest. And now neither of them really read for pleasure. My daughter, my older daughter will always pick up a book at the airport when she's going off on holiday and then we'll bring it back fully unread. But I like, I like the fact <laughs> that at least she realizes that when you go on holiday, you should have a book in your suitcase. Mm. <laughs> you know, she'll get there in the end. <laughs> you know, and one day, yeah, it's just that moment of sort of, you know, curiosity or boredom or both where you sort of got these, you know, books from over the years and you're like, maybe I'm curious about that one. And you, exactly. It all comes exactly. back. Or like the colour of memory sitting on my sister's abandoned bookshelf in her old bedroom and just, yeah, brought back to life in a in a you know a few years down the line so i think i've heard you speaking about how the sort of you know the the thrillers and sort of the darker psychological stories were always the ones that you felt the most drawn to and you know obviously that's sort of what you write now you know because i think obviously agatha christie that's sort of much more kind of I think, straight crime. Wholesome, but, wholesome. You know, I love those books so much. Yes. <laughs> wholesome. Yeah, wholesome crime. <laughs> um, are there any other writers in that area who have sort of inspired you or stayed with you? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, I should be mentioning all the classics, um, you know, the, the the classic crime writers from, from over the last few decades. But really, Agatha Christie is the only uh, well-known traditional crime, you know, Patricia Cornwell. Have I ever read a Patricia Cornwell book? No, I haven't. Um, I've read um, 
See, I can't even remember the name of the person who wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, and that I could tell you. And if I keep blustering, we'll figure it out. Just Patricia (laughs) Highsmith. Patricia Highsmith. That's the only book I've read of hers. I haven't read any of the male crime writers at all in the genre. I haven't read... I haven't. I feel like I really haven't done my proper homework, um, <laughs> considering the genre I've ended up writing in. Um, yeah. But I read an awful lot of really dark stuff. I mean, you know, something like The Collector by John Fowles, uh, American Psycho. I absolutely loved that. Um, I went through a phase of reading those really, really trashy real life crime books. Um, there was one in particular, which I've never forgotten, which has now been dramatized. And you can actually watch this on, on, on one of the streamers, um, which is called The Girl in the Box, which was about this young girl who got picked up off the side of the highway, um, when she was hitchhiking as a young girl by a nice, cozy looking couple who drove her home and, uh, kept her in a box under their bed for 12 years or something as a sex slave. But uh, yeah, I remember reading books like that about the utterly, utterly depraved things that go on in the world and the suffering that, that some poor people are subject to. And, uh, yeah. So dark, although I didn't read any of the classic crime novels that I should have read, I was getting quite you know, down and dirty in the dark side of things in other ways. Those ones are written so compulsively. I went, oh, yeah. I think it's still there, but just outside Yorkshire, it's like a very fancy, it's a caravan park. This does not sound promising, but stay with me. But it's very, I mean, a bit kind of, you know, hipstery, all the caravans themed and they were all very, very kitschy. And one was, it had lots of those like really lurid, those sort of 70s Pan Max yes. sort of, lots of like guns and pools of blood on the cover. Yes. And I remember a great one about Hell's Angels that was just kind of absolutely like sort of no know. holds barred yeah <laughs> it was just you know lots of lots of very explicit sex and lots of like fights and shooting and you know I couldn't tell you what happened but I just remember being like <gasps> you know, <laughs> turning the page open yeah. mouth having a lovely old time oh yeah and these books you know they, they 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 read like um they were easy to write but I can imagine there's a still there's the skill that goes into writing a book that that's that's that compulsive and addictive. Well, I think it's like um, tabloid journalism, isn't it? Or Mills and Boone, where it's such a rigid style that you've got to sort of comply with. Yeah. But yeah, for me, it wasn't about the quality of the writing. It was about what was happening to the people um, and what people were capable of and the darkness of it and just wanting to be in there with them and uh, go along for the journey. And is there anything you've read that has shocked you? Never. No, there's nothing. I'm completely and utterly unshockable. There's nothing. My stomach is made of steel. Of course, I'm going to say the cliched thing, which is just ridiculous when you think how much pleasure I get out of reading books about horrible things happening to nice people. Animals, that would, that's a line for me. Um, cruelty to animals, no. That would put me off, which makes me sound so- so pathetic but I, I can't bear to read about cruelty to animals but because because so many people feel the same way there actually isn't very much cruelty to animals in the sort of genre that I like reading in so because I just read um coming up for air by George Orwell and it's really very you know funny and satirical and smart but there's a little bit of animal cruelty where he's remembering his boyhood and this old pond he used to go to and yeah it really took me out of it and also yeah. there's like absolutely horrible like there's so much misogyny in that book as well and that I was like well Whoa. you know the times but yeah this the sort of I the think animal it's, it's a bird or something and I was like this 
this is really, really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no, there's no reason for it. Um, I'm not interested in the psychology of animal cruelty. I'm only interested in the psychology of cruelty of man upon man. Um, so yeah, no thank you to, to hurting animals, but anything else, I'm there for it. Let me ask you. I must <laughs> um, remember, by the way, so, uh, cause you mentioned, um, Brett Easton Ellis and American Psycho, and I have a, love-hate relationship with BEE. I find him so thrilling and compelling. I am the only person I've ever met who liked Imperial Bedrooms and no one else does but we were talking to Ken Follett the other day for this podcast about the idea of characters as brands and authors as brands and sort of James Bond being the first and because Ken Follett was talking about how um, Fleming used like actual brand names in a in a way that hadn't really been done before at the time, and that reminded me that um you are at the top of Ken Follett's TBR pile. Oh, what just by accident? Because yeah, that was he, the yeah, last jiffy bag he had opened, or but yeah, he said he was halfway through. Oh, I think he was halfway through. None of this is true, and he was um completely gripped. He had no idea what was going to happen. He was absolutely riveted and having a fantastic time. Ken Follett. Oh my god, my dad would be so impressed. <laughs> so, and I oh. thought that's such a coincidence. And I told him like we're talking to you on Friday. So, oh my goodness, that's 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 wow, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that with me. I love it. I just I love the coincidence. I yeah. thought it was it was fabulous. It um, is. When I think about sort of your books and I think about you know what you must read and again I read and this is a, I read too many interviews before Ugh. we spoke and now it's like rather than me properly interviewing you I'm just going to quote bits <laughs> of other interviews but planning and timelines and sort of world building and I love I think what you said about how the timelines are actually keeping you in check and sort of keeping you keeping control of the story when I read I'm always so surprised and so delighted by everything I can't see things coming were you good at when you were reading a lot of Christy, were you never good at that, predicting that, them? that was the addiction, I think. That's what fueled the addiction is I don't I never, ever, ever broke her code. I never worked out who'd done it, ever. It was always the last person I expected. And and I guess I sort of I write the same way in this sort of like fugue of of, of not knowing anything about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I write about people who've been killed without having a clue who killed them until I get closer to the end of the book. And I've kind of given myself lots of options, which is great, because what a good way of giving the reader lots of options mm. as well, which is definitely not how Agatha Christie wrote her books. Um, <laughs> but it wor- it works for me because I'm keeping everything vague. I'm keeping all everything up in the air. I'm pointing fingers here, there and everywhere and letting the reader see that everybody is capable of, of anything. Um, but that also, as a writer who doesn't work with a plan, gives me the options as I get closer to the end of the book to, to make my own decision. Do you ever go back and change it? Do you ever finish it and then you sit with it for a few days yeah. or a few weeks and be like, oh no, not them? Ish. There's always something. If you've read a lot of my books, you'll know that at the end of my books, because I don't build in massive twists inside my books, it's more a series of, of tantalising reveals. Mm-hmm. I always like to, and, and from my experience of reading in the genre as well, some of, some of the best books in the genre let me down in the last few pages because we already know everything and then we're just tying up loose ends and then we get to the end of the book and it's just like the good bit has already happened and you've had to read however many pages mm-hmm. to get to the end. And my favourite experience when reading a book is to get to the end and feel everything as you shut the book um so I 
try as much as I can to close off my books, even if it's in one line or just something. It doesn't have to subvert the whole preceding narrative, but just something to get the reader, you know, give them a little shiver, just, oh, I hadn't thought of that. Or does that mean such and such did so and so? Or, you know, just to let them sort of have that moment at the very end. And those are the bits that I do play around with, not the huge hooks, not the huge decisions, but, you know, talking about none of this is true, my new book. For me, all the work in that book is in the last chapter, but I didn't write that last, I, I wrote six versions of that last chapter and they were all completely different until I got to that one. And I thought, that's the one. That's the last piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And that makes sense of everything else that happened in that book. Because every other last chapter I put onto the end of that book just dissipated it, just sort of diluted it, just kind of took away from what had happened preceding. Um, so yeah, that's something that I can work a lot on after the event, without doubt. I think you're so good at making the reader feel like they knew like in their cells or in like the yeah. underside of their brain. And just that sort of like, it's sort of a delicious surprise, but also it's not because sometimes there's that feeling where you're being kind of held at arm's length and you yeah. don't want the author to feel like they're like, gotcha, you never, ever, ever saw that. You sort of feel like you're in on it in some way. Although maybe not in a conscious way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I am always assuming because of the way I write, the reader is having a similar experience to the one I'm having writing the book because I'm kind of clueless most of the time. Um, and I often don't make big decisions till I'm literally staring at the screen um, and typing words onto it. And then I just realise I've made a big decision and I hadn't seen it coming before I made it. And then the reader's going to read it and, and think I'd planned it that way all along. Uh, but I really hadn't. So I do think there's a synergy between the way I write and the way my readers read my books, which I think is part of the pleasure of them, um, that we're all sort of experiencing it in, in, in a similar way. I'm kind of not playing tricks, I think. Yeah. I'm not like this godlike figure who's got it all mapped out and has decided exactly where they're going to try and trip the reader up and exactly where they're going to, you know, withhold information. And the book that I'm writing at the moment, I've, I'm actually having to go back through it retroactively, taking out too many reveals because I've realized I've given the reader too much. But I had to write those reveals for myself in order to know what had actually happened. And now I can go back and take some of them out, um, not to trip the reader, but to make the book more fun for the reader to add you know, that momentum and tension to the book. I think that makes total sense. I think there's enormous value in knowing something that you don't have to actually sort of put directly yeah. on the page and tell, but you know it's there. Yes. It exists for you know sort of your satisfaction and your understanding as you build those worlds exactly um, I've just read yellow face I'm very <gasps> careful about this whole yeah. area yes. and all the kind of the spoilers and I absolutely loved it it was great fun it was quite painful uh it was a real kind of you know it really rolled along I'm not sure how I feel about the ending and I did feel a little bit like it was fine and it was you know sort of clever and it's in a quite an arch way but also I did feel a bit like huh is that it? Have you read it yet? I have not. It's on my suitcase pile for when I go to Mallorca next month. 
Um, and because I like to take the big hyped up books away with me and just devour the hyped up books when I'm on a sun lounger. So I have not read it yet, but I do, I, I know that I understand the gist of it. And, and now at least I'm pre-warned about the, the end chapter. I'd be really, really curious to hear what you think. Maybe we can do another, like a post-holiday podcast. Yeah, yes. What else is on the pile? Oh God, this is just the joy because, um, and I'm sure we will discuss this later, um, that my, my reading habits have, have changed horribly. And um, I've gone from being a, a mildly voracious reader to a struggling reader. It's really tragic, but I still do read voraciously when I'm on holiday. And it's a joy to me. It's mainly, I think, because I can't see the screen of my phone on a sun lounger. Um <laughs> And so I start curating my suitcase pile from quite early on in the year. Just, And it probably is quite annoying for some of the writers involved because they send me these books to look at in advance of publication so I can give them a blurb. And I'm like, I know you'd like my blurb, but I want to read this on a sun lounger. So I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, so I've already, I mean, I've got about eight. I usually take about five. I think I've got about eight at the moment so I'm going to have to do some editing of it when it gets to the point but at the moment I've got The Rachel Incident by Caroline O'Donoghue uh, Yellow Face um, I've got Kayla is it Kayla or Carla by Colin Walsh it's quite big it scares me actually it's quite a fat book um, oh in fact I'm just looking at the, the spine on it on my book pile here and it actually came out just yesterday so that's freshly oh. freshly published um, next of Kin by Kia Abdullah. Now, I would like to say to anybody who likes reading my books and would like someone to fill the gaps uh, in between the reading of my books and um, their other favourite authors, if you haven't discovered Kia Abdullah yet, she is second to none. She's, in, she's an incredible thriller writer. And then I've got Strong Female Character by Fern Brady, which I believe is, is that a memoir? It is. That's been one of my favourite books of the year. I ah. loved it. Good, excellent. I mean, because a lot of these, some of these are ones that have been sent to me. Um, but I will do that. I will do that thing that publishers dream of when, when I read or see something hyped up on, on social media or read a review in the media. Um, I'll go straight onto the pre-order, um, and click on the pre-order button. And that's one of them. So I can't really. And anyone who's listening and hearing that, we, we love that. We Please love pre-orders. Pre-order early, yes. pre-order often. Yes, always do your pre-orders. And you can do them from your local bookshop as well. It doesn't just have to be from um, Amazon. So those, oh, and Lessons in Chemistry. Can you believe I've not read Lessons in Chemistry yet? I've been saving it, saving it, saving it. Oh, and Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow is another one. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back with Lisa soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen The Beach Holiday by Isabel Broom. This is Escapist Heaven. Novelist Honor is stuck in seeking inspiration, and she finds herself in the Hamptons. Will she write her book or fall in love? And must she choose? If you've not got a holiday coming up, here is one in paperback form. It's sweet, addictive, immersive and elegant. I thought the vibe was very mature Emily Henry with touches of the paper palace. I loved it. The Beach Holiday by Isabel Broom is published by Hodder and out now. Now back to Lisa. You know, the heaven and hell, isn't it, of always sort of being overwhelmed by things Yes, to read. and it, it is overwhelming. And I had a big clear out. Um, I actually posted on Instagram my, my TBR pile uh, after I'd had the huge clear out and got rid of dozens and dozens of books off these piles um, not books I didn't want to read, but books that I realistically knew I was never, ever, ever going to read because I'm going to say there's about 200 books on my TBR. And so it is quite overwhelming. So the fact that I've, yeah, having had a clear out, I've still got 200 books that I would like to read quite desperately and no longer really read. Um, it's quite... <laughs> yeah, because is it your writing schedule must be so you know, Nothing demanding to do with that. so it's... intense that is it no. difficult to have... To read a different no. story while you're writing one? It has zero to do with my writing schedule. My writing schedule is very compartmentalised. Uh, it, it actually, while I'm talking to you, it precisely isn't compartmentalised. My writing schedule over just the last four days and going into tomorrow has started leaking out into tendrils of my life that I don't normally uh, allow it to. But that's fine because I'm delivering it tomorrow and then it's done. Um, but no, usually my writing, writing part of my life is incredibly compartmentalised within the hour hours of 2 till 6 p.m. So I'm not I'm not influenced or distracted or bothered by anything else that I'm absorbing outside of those hours. Yeah, I'm mainly a um TV watcher, I have to say. I really have turned quite horribly from books to television and I feel awful. But I used to do all my reading when I was a mildly voracious reader in bed at night. And now I don't. Now I just sit and scroll through my phone for like 40 minutes until I get tired. And then I pick up my book and I read two pages and then I'm ready for sleep. So, yeah, I just all the moments in my life that I used to use for reading, I now use for staring at my phone or watching television. I've just lost what the, the, the mojo, as it's called. My reading mojo has gone. So it's very sad very tragic and it's also very difficult when I've got so many books I'd like to read. I'm always really curious about that because I've definitely had periods of my life where I've read more and read less and sometimes the really being you know I'm very very spoiled for choice and I really miss that time when you know you'd go to the library I'd go to the yeah. library and the you know the novelty 
of that and you know possibly kind of you know running out of books and being excited about books I wonder if we need a bit of scarcity to sort of help us along oh do you think there's just too many books do you think books. do you think we should just stop publishing for a while at least you know manage it somehow <laughs> yes I don't know why because I find for some reason I mean I watch nonsense tv I feel very like I don't watch the big things that everyone likes and is supposed to watch I adored succession but sort of other than that um I'm not very good at telly and I, I think that you know now you know that is like the art form and they're you know sort of beautiful like mini plays and films yes. and that's what we should be sort of watching and learning about but Yesterday, I downloaded and read um, in an evening while sort of watching the thing on Channel 4 about beach huts, uh, Four Blondes by Candice Bushnell. And I read it and I'm really curious about her because the first lines of her books, I'm always a bit like, God, this is so trashy. This is horribly (laughs) constructed. What is this? And then she makes these really like very biting, incisive, quite cold observations about people and how they live. And this was interesting because I thought I'd read it before. I think I must have read it before, but actually it's sort of full kind of loosely stitched. They're all something between a novella and a short story. And I thought, oh, the first story in this, I think, became a novel later. But she's so good at character assassinations. And also, and I think I love anything that's written 20 or 30 years ago because I don't have to contemplate how horrible the world is now, but it's still a world I sort of (laughs) recognise. Yes, you can can read it in the hope that we've all sort of... um evolved in better ways but I was also thinking my goodness all of those you know books that I should be reading that I'm not reading because you're I've reading a 30 year old book yes <laughs> binged on this sort of you know ebook for 2.99 yeah. but I can it's just pitched at the right level that I can kind of read you know with my mouth open while tv happens behind me yeah and it, and, and you're saying it's a reread for you oh yeah I think I probably you think read you it. have yeah because the, the, the concept of rereading to me is just alien I I yeah, even books that hold a, a place in my heart, I feel like I just want to keep them there in my heart. I don't feel any desire to pick that book up again and read it again. It's just, it's done its job. Um, I don't need it to do anything else for me. Um, and it now sits, sits on my bookshelf. I, I did a Marie Kondo on my books when I cleared them out a few years ago of like, yeah, does it spark joy? And so all the books that stay on my shelves have sparked joy. Oh. Um, I wouldn't want to reread them. Tell me about the books that have sparked joy. Are they the ones? Can I just see them over your shoulder? Oh, I can't quite read the spine. God, no, you won't be able to. This is actually. I had to write an article. Uh, oh no, what's that? It's a different pile of books. Sorry, it's all back to front. Oh no, this is all the books that have come out of um, Jiffy bags. Um, ah, that's my my new my new proofs pile that I haven't quite edited down yet to go onto my reading pile. Oh, it's insane. Uh, yeah, the books behind me on the shelves are my the ones that, that made the cut when I did my Marie Kondo. Um, and they're very, very varied. And a lot of them, interestingly, what you were saying about the Candice Bushnell, a lot of them are from the 90s and noughties, which I don't know what that says. I don't know what that says about the soul of a reader or what that says about the quality of, of fiction these days. I don't know. But um, yeah, a lot of them are older rather than than newer there's very few new books that make make it onto the shelves of joy (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to hear about the titles on the shelves of joy oh my goodness um do you want shall i just sort of randomly 
So we've got, oh, Darling Daisy by Anushka Gross Forrester. Darling Daisy. Oh, I don't well, remember should... that. Oh, I should that read was, that. That is the most amazing um, noughties book. It's just like when I think of all the, mil- the the millennial stuff and the Gen Z stuff that's that's so popular at the moment, that really sort of satirical but fresh but, you know, gutsy kind of funny romantic, dark romantic fiction that's so popular at the moment. This was that, but it was in 2001. It's absolutely amazing. Oh, that the sounds great. Camden Girls by Jane Owen. Oh my God, that's so 90s. That's the most classic 90s book. There you go, American Psycho. Oh, Alan de Botton. Did you ever read any of Alan de Botton's novels in, in the noughties and 90s? I don't think I knew he wrote novels. He wrote the most fantastic, fresh, funny, romantic relationship novels with so much insight. Obviously, he's a philosopher, uh, so that kind of goes without saying but that I think I, in fact I would, I would go as far as to say that the Alan de Botton novels and there were three of them uh it, were part of the the basis of the inspiration for me to to write novels oh that sounds brilliant I've just found um Camden Girls trawling through her answer phone messages on a Friday night Juno sets off on a weekend extravaganza of pubs parties and raves yeah. smoking joints and snorting lines out of the town with Shell blonde babe Lou pregnant again and Melissa seeing someone else's man, all doing it harder, faster and louder than anybody else. Now, what does that remind you of? Or everything I knew about love? Dolly's book. Do- Dolly's book. book. Yeah. Just girls out in the town in Camden. In Camden. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I've got The Stopped Heart by Julie Myerson, which is, I guess, 15 years old. That's one of the most incredible thrillers I have ever read in my life. It's got a little bit of a ghost story running through it as well. I love Julie Myerson. Oh. Um, a very underrated writer. I have got The Beach by Alex Garland, <laughs> Apple Tree Yard by Louise Doughty. I've got Alice Always by Harriet Lane. Uh, One Day by David Nichols. The Honeymoon by Amy Jenkins. Oh, he wrote oh. This Life. Yes. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, it was her huge. I remember it was just such a big deal back in the, back in the noughties. Uh, I think she got like £600,000 for it and it was the most overhyped book of the year and then it came out and it was people were very quick to jump on it. William Sutcliffe, Are You Experienced? Nick Horn, oh, Small Island, Andrea Levy, Come Together, Josie Lloyd and Emlyn Reese. I remember that Yeah, quite um, vividly. Oh, The Girl in the Red Coat by Kate Hamer. That's a fabulous thriller. So the, it's all very random a uh, bit of Jenny Colgan. Got Paula Yates's autobiography. I've got You by Caroline Ketness. Yeah, it's kind of random, but it's kind of lovely as well. They are. They make me happy. I'm, I can't take can't take my eyes off them now. <laughs> Absolutely. Why uh, we make this podcast? Because this is what I love to hear about, and not you know having the sort. Of, I mean, it's really you know if someone's got a special connection to Dickens and loves those books and wants to talk about them, yeah. hooray! But also, it's that the, you know this is your canon. Yeah. And these are so evocative and I've read some of them and I've seen all of them and I can picture those covers and they're so, it's such a sort of a powerful bringing about of a particular time. They're the books that made me. Well, you know, I am one of many novelists writing now who learned 
everything yeah, I'm still very much learning obviously but everything I write is informed by the essence of this it's um uh what do you call <laughs> what do you call that thing homeopathy yeah which is obviously I'm not sure I believe in homeopathy but I believe in the homeopathy of books all those drops collecting and gathering and exactly exactly and not all of them do which is why some of them go to the charity shop um and some of them just stick around forever and yeah no it does it makes me I could just go on I could literally just just carry on reading all the spines on the books because every time I read a title of one of those books I just get a feeling and and a twinkle and a sort of a moment of remembering something and you don't need to reread them maybe you just need them there to have that feeling and have that remembering they've done their job I reread one day quite recently again just because I was really in need of a comfort read a comfort something and I think for me it's that sort of that's why I go back and reread Candice Bushnell and things because I just find it very very soothing I was talking to David Nichols about it because he's adapting it or it's being adapted for Netflix at the moment and he's quite involved and he was saying how chilling it is that you know, the casting of it. No one in it was born in 1989 when it begins. Oh my goodness. Wow. That is, that's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. It's just, at the same time, it just feels like like looking at that um, Darling Daisy. It's still, that's what the world looks like and that's what the world feels like. But it was a full generation ago and it's really hard for me to get my head around that, that people were doing the same things and going to the same places and living the same lives and wearing the same flipping clothes half the time. Mm. Um, (laughs) Well, that was it in this, in um, Four Blondes. There's a bit, there's a story where it's, and she's 38, my age, and she's married and in a marriage that's very sort of, glossy and functional and seemingly perfect but actually awful and miserable there's something she's an editor or she's very very high up in a magazine she's complaining about all the women in her 20s and she's like and they just wear these like awful like their skirts are too short and they wear these tops that are just like lingerie and they're kind of sloppy and scruffy and I'm like well hold on that's what everyone wears now you know 20 25 years later yeah well it's the, the y2k aesthetic which um yeah, my daughter said that to me a few years ago. I wish I'd been born in whatever year it would have made her to be a teenager in 2002. And she was watching <laughs> the Paris Hilton and Nicole um, Ritchie. Um, what was it called? Their show? Oh, the Simple Life. The Simple Life. She was binge watching that and just dreaming of, of having been a young person back in back in that period of time. So, yeah. I was 17 in 2002 and she didn't miss much. Oh, no. Music was awful, I think. <laughs> Music was horrible. Music was horrible around then. There was nothing worth listening was to. nothing but, good. Uh, it's... Yeah, the 90s had been and gone and it was just, it all went down. Yeah, as it often does um, after, after a high, a cultural high, things go downhill. But, yeah. Which era would you most like to write have you ever thought about doing a sort of 90s period? Well, I did, in fact. I, I wrote a book called Before I Met You, which was supposed to be a Britpop love story set in Soho in the 90s. And I wanted it to be just at that moment before people had home computers and, and mobile phones. It's about a young girl who leaves the island of um, Guernsey um, and comes and as you could back in those days, rents herself a little flat in Soho. Because <laughs> you could actually do that back then, um, and ends up working as a nanny for um, these Britpop stars who live in Primrose Hill. So that was very much supposed to be my '90s Britpop 
be a cool Britannia novel, but I it just I think I was kind of moving away from romance at that point and it wasn't quite meaty enough for me. So I added this backstory of her great grandmother coming to London in 1918, um, just at the end of the First World War and her experiences um, with a mystery running through it. But yeah, there were, I definitely, if I was to write a novel set in another period, I think the 90s would be it, definitely. It was, a, you know, the saying, what a time to be alive. That really was a time to be alive. <laughs> I mean, you were too young to appreciate it. I'm so sorry. I was, like your so daughter. Sorry. <laughs> that's what, but that's how I, you know, I've often felt like, oh, if only, if I could have been... 22 in 1990 I would have had a grand old time for myself you would (laughs) and yeah and I think that's sort of going to London and you know thinking oh but those were the days where you could like rent a little attic yeah absolutely absolutely no that was it was definitely I think a peak of human evolution in the 90s and uh there we go never mind it's all over now (laughs) oh well maybe there are still books to be books to be written about it yeah maybe (laughs) We live in hope. So um, I would love to ask about the book that you're writing at the moment. Are you, is that completely verboten and secret? Oh, is there anything you can tell us? I I can tell you tiny bits about it. Um, it was supposed to, the, the official announcement was supposed to have gone out in March. Then it was supposed to go out in April, then May, and, then, and now it's July and it still hasn't gone out. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm, I'm quite growing quite weary of, of my, my lack of ability to actually talk about this book, uh, to anyone who's not related to me. Um, but yes, it is out of genre. So I was approached by a, a different publisher about a year ago. Um, no, not a year ago, 18 months ago, who asked if I would consider writing a book. So I was commissioned to write a book in a completely different genre using a preordained character that already exists, um, a fictional character that already exists. And um, I agreed because it was a fictional character that I loved. And it was a genre that was a challenge for me, particularly at this point in my career, um, to to branch out into. And um, it has been a challenge to write. Not as much fun as I thought it was going to be. I've discovered some oh, of my own, I have discovered some of my own limitations and I also discovered that doing what I always do hasn't worked so well for this. So in all of my books, if you're familiar with them, I write my stories from multiple points of view and using different timelines. And I came into this thinking, oh, that's the only way I can write a book. I can't write a book from one person's perspective. It doesn't work. Uh, so I've wasted 52,000 words writing different timelines and character perspectives into this book and now just cut them all out and left it with just my main character's perspective. So it's it's very different to my normal books, but it's taken me a long time to work out how to get this book onto the page and to make it work. And yeah, it's been it's been hard work. Uh, and it's just it's given me this sense of like, can't wait to just get back to writing a nice little psychological thriller. <laughs> <laughs> They're so easy, you know. <laughs> Has it been, I think, like refreshing or do you feel like you're still yeah. too Like, are you glad that you've challenged yourself or at this point you're just like, oh. No, I am really glad that I challenged myself. It worked out really well for me as well because I'm a book a year, contracted book a year writer and this this commission meant I had to write two books in a year. I went into writing None of This Is True thinking, right, you've got six months to write this book. And actually, I think that did 
none of this is true, some real favours. Because mm. usually I start my books and it's very leisurely, la, 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 I've got the whole summer, I've got months and months and months, I don't need to worry too much and I take it very easy. I ease myself in very gently, but with none of this is true, I thought, right, you've got to hit the ground running with this, you've just got to start and do not stop until you've finished. And I think it contains that energy. I think you can feel when you read that book that it was written in a blur um so it worked out very well from that perspective but now this book has sort of been a bit of a setback I thought I was going to write this one really quickly as well but I'm well over the deadline at this point gone way into my um you know sort of the the period of the year that I was hoping would be the time when I'd start thinking about my next novel um but yeah I'm I'm very very glad I said yes to it it's it's fantastic at, at my age at this point in my career to test myself and also to to you know to to understand what I do in a way that I don't think I really understood what I did before and um, how important it is that I I write in my sort of tried and tested way um, because that that works for me and other things don't. It must kind of strengthen it that like, oh yeah. yes you know I must be definitely doing the right thing doing it this way because of sort of trying another area. Yeah, I've used new muscles and the muscles are hurting, but it's been a really good exercise for me. Good. I'm very excited to hear about who this mysterious character could be. (laughs) When I was writing my second novel, Careering, which is terrifying to write a second, when you sort of, I remember thinking, well, I've done it once. How hard can it be? And I knew everyone said the second one's really hard because you think that you've learned stuff that you've not, and all you can see is that bit in the horizon and that bit better that you could be. But I was also... um, I was doing some ghostwriting of an H.E.'s pop memoir at the same time. And it was the best thing I could have done because I just thought, well, I've just got to get this. And the deadline was quite tight. And again, I'm also a, a book a year. And I thought, I must just do this to the best of my ability. Writing two books at the same time, one was a sort of a shock absorber for the other. And it made me so appreciative of having a novel to write and having a, you know, yes. that, that sort of the, the passion project and the other project. So, and the comfort project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lisa, over the best um, afternoon talking to you, it has been a joy. I know you've got to get on and you've got a book to hand in. So oh. I should leave you to your afternoon. But before we go, are there any books that we haven't mentioned that you would like oh. to talk about? Yeah, I think a lot of people would want to take away from listening to a podcast like this. It's finding new authors. Absolutely. Um, Sabine Durrant. I'm sure you've read Sabine Durrant. Um, have you yeah. read Sabine Durrant? I, I don't Great. understand why everybody doesn't read, read Sabine Durrant. Um, she is absolutely awesome. Uh, her favourite, uh, my favourite of her novels is called Lie With Me. And um, I think it's one of the best novels in the psychological oh, thriller genre. Oh, I love genre. Lie With Me. Oh, just, about that. just amazing. Catherine Heine. She is, um, and I do very much prefer to read in my own genre. I do like dark novels. I do like thrillers. I do like crime. I do like um, horrible things happening to nice people. But for my light relief, Catherine Heine is, um, everybody should pick up one of her books she's got a short story anthology out at the moment called games and rituals which is like which is like a taster it's just like a little like you know you can just dip in and out of it and if you like those then you should read her books because standard deviation is one of the most hilarious novels that sort of quiet hilarity um that i've ever read and uh, oh yeah shout out for a couple of friends they're friends of mine but i'm also a fan of theirs and i want people to um, buy their books, Amanda Jennings and Tammy Cohen. Again, they both write in the psychological thriller genre. Again, um, I 
could not recommend any of them any of their books more highly they are absolutely amazing writers well there is no lovelier way to end this than on recommending authors and giving people a lovely boost so that is delightful thank you so much and i am so excited about you know the about the future <laughs> so yeah. it's being very vague and cryptic here but you yeah. you can't wait to find out what the book is <laughs> it's true i want i want the 90s and yeah. i want the next yeah <laughs> thank you for having me it's been wonderful huge thanks to lisa none of this is true is out on the 20th of july and published by century your book is created by me daisy buchanan and dale shaw and edited and produced by dale shaw for new alaska you can find a list of all the books Lisa mentioned at acast.com slash booked and see a selection on our page at bookshop.org. We're so grateful to everyone who shares the podcast, shouts about it, and especially to everyone who has given us a five-star review. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast, and it means we can keep bringing brilliant book chat to your ears. Finally, I leave you with this from WH Jordan. Some books are undeservedly forgotten. None are undeservedly remembered. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 